Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined by the professor of law at Chase Law School, Ken Katkin. Ken, welcome to the show. Hey, Trey, it is truly great to be back. Well, you know, it's weird when I don't get to have you. You know, I had uh, we had to have the fill in of Mike last time since you were gallivanting around the world. And <laughs> yeah, I was, I've been out of the country almost the entire time since we last recorded. But I, I got back last night. Well, you got back just in time that we get to you know keep you from sleep and get to talk about exciting things. I mean, so we got a bunch of stuff. We always get the best draws, I think, sometimes because, of course, we have. All of we already were going to cover the Trump indictment, but of course, here's recording this on Friday afternoon. We have a bunch of new things coming up, and we were looking at that for the show. We're going to start and be talking about that. Uh, we're going to move from there to the United States Supreme Court ruling on the Alabama congressional map uh, being a violation of the Voting Rights Act. We'll talk about that. Uh, from there, we're going to move to what I thought was going to be one of the bigger stories this week, but kind of got bumped down to number three, uh, the conservative uh, House floor revolt and uh, business being at a standstill until Monday. And then finally, uh, we'll finish the show up talking a little bit about Mike Pence uh, as an official candidate for the presidency uh, and, and how he views things in terms of Trump, uh, including some commentary on uh, the indictment or at that point, what was the potential of an indictment. So let's get started with the Trump indictment, Ken. So late Thursday, former President Trump was indicted by a federal grand jury for his handling of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago in Florida. Now, as we've already noted, this is historic. I mean, it's going back to Aaron Burr kind of historic. This is the first time the federal government has brought charges against a former president. Now, uh, uh, Trump and his team is disclosing it. And then as of Friday, right as we uh, are doing this show, we got some additional uh, public information about the indictment. The Wall Street Journal reported uh, that there was going to be at least seven counts. But as we can see now, uh, that number actually went up. It appears that uh, as we were doing this, there were 37 charges, including 31 counts of violations of the Espionage Act. So we're going to try to kind of keep this up as we move forward. Um, at the same time, uh, James Trustee was the first to confirm that that is, in fact, what had happened. Uh, but, of course, another kind of late breaking for our show uh, note is, is that he and the other primary Trump uh, lawyer both resigned from it uh, on Friday afternoon as well. In this case, Trustee and Raleigh, uh, both of them resigned, calling it, quote, a logical moment to leave the case because it's headed to Miami. And so Trump is in the process right now uh, of putting another individual in charge. And as it is being noted again, as of Friday afternoon, an undisclosed law firm uh, to handle that case. So over on Truth Social on Thursday, Trump has already labeled this hole as the boxes hoaxes uh, and indicated he had to appear in Miami for his federal court. Uh, he said this, quote, I never thought it possible that such a thing could happen to a former president of the United States, end quote. Trump added in all caps, I am an innocent man, end quote. So the evidence leading to the indictment uh, by a federal grand jury includes, we can see before and now, uh, including audio recordings from 2021, where he openly talks about uh, the apparently secret document saying things such as, quote, as president, I could have declassified it, 
but now I can't, end quote. Um, uh, Ken and I were looking at some of this as we were starting the show up, uh, and it appears that he has a number of this. He says things like, quote, I don't want anybody looking through my boxes. I don't want you looking through my boxes. Uh, Wouldn't it be better if we just told them we didn't have anything here? Uh, And finally, quote, well, look, isn't it better if there are no documents? And so this leads to the charges uh, that we're taking a look at. Biden's comment when asked about the Justice Department said yesterday on Thursday, quote, I have never once, not a single time, suggested to the Justice Department what they should or should not do relative to bringing a charge or not bringing a charge. I'm honest, end quote. Now, I know there's a, you know, there's kind of a larger thing that has been over on, on, on Discord and kind of circling uh, uh, the web, Ken, and that is, well, why Trump and not Pence or Biden? Well, Easy thing would be to say numbers, but I thought I'd give us a little bit of context about that for two. We'll start with Pence. Uh, for uh, Pence, Pence has received this week a letter uh, from investigators saying that you know, his DOJ investigation is over. There was no evidence on which to move forward. Pence lawyers had initially called that there was, quote, a small number of classified materials had been found at the vice president's home in Indiana. Uh, but that was disclosed uh, and and uh, moved forward. The FBI later conducted a five-hour voluntary search of Penn's home uh, and, and uncovered one additional classified document. It appeared that there was no other wrongdoing. Now, in the case of Biden, Biden's personal lawyers were clearing out a former office at Penn, uh, uh, at Penn Center for diplomacy and global engagement in 2022 when an attorney found what he called, quote, a small number of classified documents, numbering about 10. Uh, Biden had been used from office from 2017 to 2020. Additional documents were discovered at Biden's residence thereafter in Wilmington, Delaware, in December and January. Now, of course, after the classified uh, materials were discovered at Biden's former offices, Biden's attorneys immediately contacted the White House counsel uh, and, according to Saber, uh, the special counsel to the president. Garland has named a special counsel for this, former uh, Justice Department attorney Robert Hur, to lead the investigation, but no special counsel was named in Pence's case, and the exact status of Hur's probe remains unclear. Now, we could talk more about this, but again, in terms of just numbers, we're talking about moving documents around repeatedly in the Trump case. We're talking about 300 classified documents, uh, mostly recovered in 2022, uh, and then again, after a prolonged battle, uh, uh, with government agencies. And this is fundamentally different than what has happened with Biden and Pence in just kind of a nutshell, because I know that's one of the first things people ask about. So to kind of circle back to, to Trump and the historic nature of this, Ken, you know, this is, this is a former president getting indicted. This is a big deal. What's, what's your take? Yeah, it certainly is uh, unprecedented, but you know, it would have been unprecedented. Well, I think the more unprecedented thing is to have a, a a president who, you know, during his presidency and especially during his post-presidency committed so many crimes because it it similarly would have been unprecedented to to not charge him for committing all those crimes, right? The 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 unprecedented thing is is not so much that he's being charged but that he committed all the crimes. And uh, and so you know, anything that was going to happen in response to that was in- inherently going to be unprecedented. So, I mean, this is what we for a long time, as a matter of fact, what Mike had said should have been the first shot at Trump because it is so straightforward. What do you think about that? You know, you, you had taken a more positive view of the New York proceedings uh, but this kind of was the meat, what we've been kind of waiting for. Do you think there, as Mike uh, and as Jay have argued, do you think that the impact of this indictment, you know, we recognize it as being historic, but do you think that it is minimized by the fact that it comes in the wake of, to, for lack of a better term, smaller or maybe not as clear-cut law violations? Let me, let me answer that two ways. I mean, first, uh, you know, of course, these are much more serious charges than the, than the ones in New York, but but I think the 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 misconception that maybe Jay and Mike were both operating under when they discussed this um, is that the 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 criminal justice system uh, is supposed to involve um, some kind of uh, level of um, coordination across agencies 
for political purposes. Um, you know, that, that it would have been better for this indictment to come first because someone should have been coordinating uh, to make sure that the one that's the most politically impactful would come first. And I think that's just very contrary to the tenets of, of how the criminal justice system is supposed to operate, right? The, 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 um, the, the U.S. attorneys, uh, Jack Smith's office, are, are, are rightly and properly not coordinating with Alan Bragg's DA's office in New York, who's rightly and properly not coordinating with them. They're 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 investigating different cases. They're bringing forward the cases when they have probable cause to indict. And you know the the events that um, led to the New York indictment happened much earlier than the uh, events that led to the, the the current indictment. And so it's not surprising that a investigation um, got wrapped up sooner. In fact, it took longer, but still got wrapped up sooner. Um, and uh, and I, I just think the right way for prosecutors to proceed is they investigate a case, and when they've got enough probable cause to bring the case forward, they bring it forward. I don't, I don't think they should be coordinating for for maximizing the political impact of that, and I, I, I think that would be improper to do so. So I, again, will defend Alan Bragg for bringing forward his case um, first because he was ready to bring it forward, and that's the time to bring it forward. Um, this one, though, is is a much bigger deal, and, uh, um, and I, I think... Uh, it'll be much harder for for Trump to avoid uh, uh, getting convicted here. I guess he does have a small hope of doing that because he seems to have drawn, you know, the same corrupt judge that tried to throw him a lifeline uh, earlier in the same investigation. Um, but uh, his own appointees on the Eleventh uh, Circuit um, really shut that down last time, and I think they, I don't think they're gonna, I don't think they're gonna give this this district judge uh, a lot of leeway to subvert justice um, the way she tried to do before. Before we get all the way into the political, you know, I started pushing us that way a little bit. Let's talk about the legal side of this. I mean, again, I'm not a prosecutor. Uh, you know, the closest I ever got to that was interning for one <laughs> for a couple of years. Um, <laughs> so, you know, that, 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 that hangs out around zero. But it seems to me as somebody who does pay attention to these kinds of things that, right, I mean, we have already in the indictment incriminating statements from the individual himself, which is admissible. We have the actual movement of the documents in a way that clearly seems to indicate an attempt to keep them away, which appears to back up what was being said by him. And then, of course, we have the indictment, although not as seemingly a big deal, but potentially in terms of the law is as a big deal, uh, of one of his aides who was assisting him in that and who then made false statements about assisting him in that. So, you know, from my point of view, it doesn't appear that there's a great defense. You know, imagine that Trump reaches out to you and says, Ken, you know, I got $5 million for you. I want you to leave. I, I, my, my, two, my two lawyers just left me. I got $5 million. What's my best defense? You know, walk, walk us through what that kind of defense might look like, given that for most of us, it doesn't appear that there's much of a defense to be had. Yeah, I don't think he's got much of a defense. Now, you know, we were only reading the indictment minutes ago and, you know, re responding to breaking news without um, doing more legal research is, is a very dangerous thing to do. And I'm sure like, you know, if, if we had had this a day or two earlier and I could have really looked at these statutes, I, I could have tried to think harder about uh, what kind of defense that he'd have. But I, I think, um, you know, I, I think he probably will try factual defenses. I think he'll probably try to, to, to pin all this on other people, you know, to say that, that he didn't um, realize uh, that, that all these documents were there, that he had tasked, tasked some of his aides uh, with responding to the, the request from the National Archive to return the documents and that he thought they did, um, that in fact, you know, one of his lawyers had signed off on something um, that said that they fully responded to all the requests. And, you know, that's what he hires lawyers for is to deal with this kind of stuff. And and he wasn't um, personally involved in the, in the search. And I think he may try those kinds of defenses, which are fundamentally factual rather than legal. Um, you know, I, I think if he tries to make any uh, legal defenses, um, you know, he, 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 I don't think, I don't think he can get very far with them. I think, I think there are some frivolous legal arguments that he can make. And again, I will emphasize he was fortunate that so far, at least unless the case gets transferred, um, he's, he's drawn a, a judge that he appointed 
um, with a proven record of, of corruption and of being willing to accept, you know, all of his legal arguments, no matter how frivolous. And so, you know, there is a chance that at the district court level, some of these will in a preliminary way be successful. I, I don't think they'll survive even the 11th Circuit, which is also dominated by Republicans. And that was what happened in the earlier go rounds. But I, I think he may make arguments along the lines of um, that he he did, in fact, declassify some of these documents uh, during the final days of his presidency, uh, that, that he just didn't properly um, uh, notify others about that, but that he, he had the, uh, the, the right and the power to declassify whatever he wanted while he was president and that he 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 did get it done while he was president for most of them now even there he's going to have some factual problems uh, making that that legal argument because some of the um, tapes that CNN has apparently uh, uh, published transcripts of um, seem to suggest that he's actually said during his post presidency you know I could have declassified these documents while I was president but I didn't do it um, but but I still think he may try to make a, a legal argument that um, that he did in fact do it and that all he really failed to do was let people know about what kinds of things that he had declassified so that's all I can really think of um, you know I think primarily just hiding behind his aides and his lawyers and saying that you know whatever laws were broken it's because they th- those people broke them and he didn't break them I, I think that's going to be the essence of his argument well let's just kind of cap it a little bit here uh, before we move forward with the political side of this now one of the things that I think sometimes uh, surprises people right but <clears throat> there's nothing about this indictment that changes his seeking office uh, and and weirdly enough there's nothing about it that stops him from even winning the nomination and, and, and moving forward in those ways uh, you know from my point of view I don't see this as really having too big of a blip when it comes to the election cycle which I know might seem shocking to some but I, I don't see that as being the case what do you think might be any of the political ramifications? Am I wrong in that assessment? What is your take? You know, I, I have to agree with you that he's still the front runner for the Republican nomination, uh, even if he's being tried um, during the primary season. Um, I think it. I think he already couldn't have won the general election. And I think, you know, it now makes it absolutely impossible for him to win the general election. And I, I don't think that there's any chance that this trial will get delayed until uh, after the general election. I, I think um, there's a tremendous imperative that the DOJ is feeling uh, to get this trial moving as fast as possible um, uh, and, and not to allow it to be derailed or delayed. And Trump is such a boy who cried wolf when it comes to delaying tactics that I think many judges are really running out of patience with his delaying tactics and keeping things on track. So, um, so I, I don't see how, I, I, you know, I, I don't see how anybody, uh, could possibly get elected president when right during the heart of the campaign, they're having to spend their days in a courtroom as a criminal defendant, um, in in a case about how much they compromise the national security, I, I think I think it will have a, a, an impact on the general election. But I actually, I guess I don't think he could have won the general election even even if he hadn't been indicted. So maybe that's no impact then. Okay, so we'll have to kind of see how that moves forward. And, and I agree. the The thought that I had was, would this be something that doesn't even come up? In other words, would they get it done before the election? Uh, that was going to be a question, but you already answered that as well. Uh, so yeah, I, I've weighed that over in my mind. I have yeah, no I mean, reason you know, to disagree, the, the, but, I, but I can also at the same time imagine the, um, but you know, given how rapidly now, especially that Trump announced uh, and that we have announcements, if you're going to say that you can't have court proceedings because you're in the middle of an election, I mean, you've, you've effectively ruled out all the time. <laughs> you know, there, there's the, yeah. you know, there's just these teeny little potential windows, uh, uh, which you know, it just doesn't make sense to me in in a macro way, but that doesn't necessarily, you know, I got to, I have to, I'd have to think about that more. Right. I, I think that the, the you know, the, all, there's no laws against um, uh, running the trial um, during the election. These are primarily Justice Department policies. And uh, the, the stronger Justice Department policies are against bringing indictments at times that they would influence an election because, you know, an indictment is something that has a lower standard of proof uh, th- than a trial. And, you know, the indictment is a one sided proceeding that the prosecutors bring and the, the defendants don't get to tell their side of the story. So if someone gets gets um, indicted right before an election, uh, 
you know, that can have a very unfair impact on the election. And, and so the Justice Department does have policies against that. But here, you know, this indictment came down, um, uh, I, I guess, I don't know if it came down today. Smith, in, in the press conference, um, uh, presented it today to the press, but I think it'll formally come down on um, Tuesday when Trump is arraigned. But in any event, we're, we're, we're still, uh, what, 15, 16 months before the election. Mm -hmm. And so, so I don't think that there's any um, policies that I know of that would require the Justice Department, even just if it wanted to follow its own policies, um, to, to delay the trial. The trial, it's not as unfair for that to be happening, um, you know, in January, February, March, even June, July, August, because the trial, uh, you know, the, the, the defendant gets to give their side of it also. It's not a one-sided proceeding. Uh, the, the public will hear from the defense as well as from the prosecution. And also the standard of proof is very high. So um, it's beyond a reasonable doubt. So if, if, if he if he you know, if, if, if it's if it's even a, a, a borderline case, the jury should acquit. And, and so, um, you know, unlike an indictment where the standard is only probable cause. So I don't think it's, it's as unfair to a political candidate um, to try them during the campaign season as it would be to indict them during the campaign season. They, they could have the benefit of being acquitted. Um, if they're tried during the campaign season, they, they can't have that benefit, you know, from an indictment. So I, I just don't see any reason that Merrick Garland would slowball this. And Trump has tried so many delaying tactics already that I think, you know, all all prosecutors and most judges, um, including even Republican judges in some of these other proceedings, you know, have really, you know, been fed up with it. And and so I, I don't I don't know how he would manage to derail it. I think I think it is going to reach a, a at least a conclusion of the jury phase before the uh, election. There, of course, would be appeals if he's convicted, and those probably wouldn't be concluded before the election. But I think there will be a conclusion of the jury phase ending in either a conviction or an acquittal um, before the election. It's likely that a lot of that trial will happen in the early months of uh, 2024. Well, let's move forward then, Ken, to what is being billed as a surprise from the Supreme Court on Thursday. Uh, as a state, Republican-drawn congressional districts in ba Alabama were found to be a violation of the Voting Rights Act. This 5-4 decision was possible because John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh joined with the three more liberal justices. Uh, Roberts wrote the opinion for the majority and agreed with the lower court that the current map violated the voting rights law. While it is possible to, quote, wrongly elevate race in the allocation of political power, uh, Roberts concludes that, quote, faithful application of our precedents and a fair reading of the record before us do not bear them out here, end quote. Uh, again, that we're ta he's talking about in this case, Alabama did not, it was, was not bear, uh, uh, borne out. So what happened was this. The new Alabama congressional districts created one district out of seven in a state in which black voters would likely be able to elect a candidate of their choosing. Because the population of Alabama is 25% black, it should have had at least two of those districts. A lower court agreed with that reasoning in January. Now, what makes this an even bigger deal, and not just on the race side, uh, is, is that it's a computer model that determined those calculations, and the Supreme Court agreed to that. As Professor uh, uh, Pines at the New York University School of Law said, quote, the case is more significant going forward than simply a reaffirmation of the status quo, end quote, because again, it's talking there uh, about the use of those computer models. So you've got these kind of two interesting facets of this case. And of course, the larger backdrop of all of this, Ken, is the fact that we're dealing with a case which I think, self included, didn't think it was going to go this particular way. And so, and so I want to talk about the case, but then I wanted to talk about that larger issue as well. So let's start, though, with, with chatting a little bit about what was your take on the case itself? Yeah, I mean, it might blur into the other issue you were asking about because I, I want to get there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I thought it would go the other way. I was pleasantly surprised it went it went this way. It's not what I predicted. Um, but you know, even even saying all that, I, I as much as you know, I could say, well, you know, maybe maybe it's good that the court, you know, sometimes will surprise me and decide things the way I think they should. Um, I, I still think if you look at it in the big picture, it, it still paints a picture of a very corrupt Supreme Court because after all. Um, all they did today, all they did was simply follow 
extremely clearly established law that the the conservative majorities on the Supreme Court themselves have established, and that um, all the lower court, the Eleventh Circuit and the Fifth Circuit, which are you know very conservative courts dominated by Republicans, and these panels were Republican, you know all they did was affirm those judges um, who sort of correctly applied the the existing Supreme Court precedents and found, you know, that where there's a really extreme and obvious racial gerrymander that's not legal under the Voting Rights Act, um, you know, they they simply just did did that. They just followed the law. And and it's a shock to everybody that they would do that. Um, And and because everybody expects, well, every case that they get, you know, the, this court is, is so corrupt that it's going to keep using every case as an opportunity to to change the law even more, you know, in a voting rights case, you know, as an opportunity to dismantle voting rights um, even more, to undo our democracy even more. So that when we get, you know, the rare case where they just leave the status quo alone, and, and I very much disagree with any professor who you cited who said they did anything other than just leave the status quo alone, you know, people think it's, it's a shock. Um, the other thing about this that I think is actually a dis- Disgrace and not something to celebrate um, is that you know if you read between the lines of this opinion, you know what what it tells us is that the corrupt Supreme Court itself, through its corrupt use of its shadow docket, um, corruptly and illegally gave the current House of Representatives that we have right now since the 2022 elections um, to the Republicans uh, because the the maps that they the maps that they uh, using the shadow docket and without any written opinions um, uh, said could be used in the 22 uh, 2022 elections in four states um, not just Alabama but but um, uh, Georgia and and Louisiana um, and I'm forgetting the fourth, but there were four cases um, where you had uh, lower courts applying the current standards that had struck down the illegal racial gerrymanders. Um, and the Supreme Court, using its shadow docket, said, well, those lower court uh, rulings can't go into effect right now because we're too close to the election. Um, and then now they end up saying, well, the lower courts were right all along. Um, th- I think that may have affected, I'm trying to get a complete count. And again, this is all, I just got back from France, but uh, so I didn't have as much time to do as much research as usual. But I, I think we're talking about six seats total um, where illegally racially gerrymandered maps that lower courts had already found to be illegally racially gerrymandered, and that the Supreme Court today affirmed were illegally racially gerrymandered, um, were were nonetheless uh, used uh, uh, with no legal justification uh, during the 2022 election. So I I think that's actually still a disgrace. Well, here's what I I do. I want to get into this a little bit, because, I mean, and you were poking, I could tell. I mean, that was was fun. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Right. I mean, you keep calling it, well, look, you know, the the corrupt court, the corrupt court. And you're like, look, you know, just the the fact that the evidence hasn't borne out that the corrupt court was corrupt this time. But that's almost become a record for our conversations. I've actually gone back to our podcast. I mean, over and over again now, multiple uh, 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 conservative so-called corrupt uh, justices uh, haven't ruled the quote-unquote corrupt way, uh, and, and repeatedly, therefore, you know, it's now you're starting to kind of get into the poli sci side of this. So I was thinking about this a lot this week because I thought we'd spend some time here, right? I mean, yeah. the the view that you're putting forward, right, and and this you know for listeners, and I, I recognize you you know this, right? It's the attitudinal yeah. model, right? Uh, which is yeah, really yeah. actually more of a it, it's more of the poli sci side of uh, side. We 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 came up with that first, and the idea basically is is that any ideology is the primary explanation. Uh, for how justices rule. But of course, I mean, at some point, and this is in fact what happened to the attitudinal model over time, it was found lacking. And so I can't help but say, well, Ken, I love you, but, you know, it's hard for me to continue to ignore the fact that we keep coming on the show and we keep having who you call being, you know, ideologically, only voting ideologically corrupt justices on the basis of, but yet the evidence doesn't suggest that they actually vote that way, either in the samples that we look at, which are admittedly a nine bias, but even if we just go dip our toes into the, into the literature, uh, uh, legal literature, sure. we see that the attitudinal model hasn't worked for a long time. I mean, even as far back as 2004, when uh, legal scholars and political scientists started getting together 
uh, to do that kind of the famous forecasting project? And the answer was, yeah, that doesn't really work all that well. And even more recently in 2017, political scientists uh, whom I'm familiar with uh, do some work on predictive machine learning to predict models behavior. And they're like, look, a lot of lawyers out there think they know how the justices are all going to rule and they get it wrong repeatedly. And I can't help but say, Ken, I mean, don't you no, probably I don't, I don't. need to back down a little bit from this? I mean, it just doesn't, you were right not, about so many things, but this one, like case after case, the six well, justices don't seemingly uh, vote in lockstep. So to keep calling it the six guys who are always going to be corrupt, it just seems like you've no, kind I'm of not run saying, out of I'm not saying it's six ground. guys, all six of whom are always going to be corrupt, but I think the corruption of allegation of corruption is well substantiated by what happened in this particular case. You know, they did steal the 2022 House elections based on what they've now said was an incorrect legal theory, right? They they didn't offer a legal theory well, when no, they Kevin stole those elections. Theory that he thought it was too close for them to use no uh, 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 district. I mean, that, that was basically Kavanaugh's argument. Well, Kavanaugh and, and, and Roberts actually back then, before he wrote this opinion today, um, also said he didn't think there was a likelihood of success on the merits um, for the case that today he said was correct on the merits. Right. But back then he said there wasn't a likelihood of success on the merits, to, that, that the case would come out the way he himself wrote the opinion to make it come out. So, you know, so they I mean, the point is that, that in 2022, when they had these cases on the shadow docket and they didn't have to offer any reasonings and they, they just had to exercise their, their political will or their political intuition or whatever. Or perhaps they had a different view of it than you did. And it wasn't corruption at all. Well, but they didn't, I mean, they didn't write any opinions explaining that different view of it. They just simply quietly stole the election. Well, Kavanaugh did. I mean, Kavanaugh, right now, admittedly, Justice uh, uh, Roberts clearly changes his mind from the beginning to the end. But that doesn't seem to be necessarily a bad thing or a sign of nefariousness. I think I, I mean I right. I don't think it's a bad thing that he changed his mind, but I do think he had a reason for doing it. I I think in in his case, um, and you know he's been a, you know probably more right wing than most of them on voting issues, and he was in fact Reagan's point man in 1982, working against um, the enactment of of Section Two of the Voting Rights Act, which was the section uh, at issue in this case. You know he was the author of the Shelby County case a couple a, a decade ago now, I guess that um, largely gutted the rest of the Voting Rights Act. Um, and uh, I, I think it's just because the affirmative action cases are about to come down. And I think that what he did here is he the, the court had already, um, you know, ruled over the series of rulings that 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 the that the conservative majority has been able to implement over the last 20 years. They, they'd already es essentially gutted the whole Voting Rights Act, um, except for this last bit where where there's extremely stark evidence of, of, of racial gerrymandering or of um, racially uh, discriminatory uh, um, uh, voting restrictions. Um, it's still possible after the fact to get a court to say that was illegal. That's like the last piece of the Voting Rights Act they hadn't already gutted. If they would have decided this one the opposite way today, they, they would have le left absolutely nothing to the whole Voting Rights Act. They would have struck down that that very last surviving bit of it. Um, and I think that they, they figured, well, it's gonna be so hard and so rare for plaintiffs in these kind of cases to, to win a case like this, that they just wanted to buy themselves a little bit of credibility before they end um, affirmative action at American universities, which will happen in the next few days. Um, and, and then, you know, they wanted to be able to buy themselves rhetorically this idea, well, they don't just, you know, decide every case against African-Americans. Look, they just defied, decided this one in, um, in favor of African-Americans. Yeah. I, mean, so I, I, I hear yeah. what you're saying with that. And I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm going to pause this a little bit there because, but again, the evidence that you're offering, as such as it is, is effectively that we have to intuit not from the actual outcome decisions, the way that political scientists would, i.e. the way they actually rule, or from the actual uh, uh, issues that they're giving, but rather that we can kind of psycho-legal psycho an psycho analyze their true motives based on, for example, in the case of Robert's you know, what, what his employment was beforehand. And then we can create a narrative from that that then explains why the seemingly counter vote, you know, a, a, as a data point 
doesn't really count as a data point because it's really just a stall job. And we can know that if we define it from the sidelines. It, 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 I mean, again, it, it doesn't stand up well to me when, when we have this kind of conversation yeah. to say, well, my evidence is, is I've got this narrative behind it that still explains it. And my answer is, well, that's okay. But that's not my that's not my evidence. That's my explanation. But my, my evidence is that, um, you know, the, for one thing, you're ignoring that Thomas Barrett, Gorsuch and Alito, that's that's, you know, twice as many of, of the Republican justices on the court as as um, the, the, the as, you know, Kavanaugh and Roberts, who voted to sustain it. The the the, the large majority of Republicans, you know, wanted to um, actually, you know, end the Voting Rights Act. And we might as well say end the whole Voting Rights Act because they've ended pretty much every other uh, aspect of the Voting Rights Act already, um, except for this last bit. So so twice as many Republican justices were willing to throw the whole Voting Rights Act out the window, um, in this case, as we're willing to preserve even a little tiny bit of it. Um, and, and also, you know, again, the, the shadow docket stuff from 2022 is evidence. And every uh, opinion that Roberts has written, I'm not just looking at 40 years ago, I was just using that as by way of explanation, not by way of evidence, but every opinion that he's ever written on the Voting Rights Act or on any voting rights cases, uh, up to and including uh, the, the, the earlier uh, stay that he granted in this very case, um, you know, is additional evidence that he's he's got a consistent 40-year agenda, unbroken by any data points until this one, um, of always trying to um, uh, take away uh, the civil rights of African Americans. And I, I don't think you can find even one other case where he voted in favor of the civil rights of African Americans. Now, I haven't done that. Uh, you know, I, I have, like I said, you know, we're only doing the very unscientific sample of, you know, the, sh the, the stories that we've taken on. Uh, and, and that's something that I'd have to look at. So I, I you know, no, I, I can't go back and say, hey, look, you know, I've done the I've done the lit review on uh, uh, on voting rights acts and John Roberts and, and taken a look at that as interesting as that would be. No. Yeah. So I think, again, there's evidence and there's a, a narrative explanation. And so my evidence is his unbroken record of Supreme Court votes, the the, the votes in this case of most of the Republicans on, on the case. And the fact that the 22, uh, 2022 uh, uh, congressional election was stolen by the Supreme Court based on a, a theory that they didn't articulate then and that they've repudiated now. Um, and, you know, and that's all the evidence. And my explanation of it is that, you know, why did Roberts and Kavanaugh change their vote here? I, I think it's because that's just my surmise, but I think it's because they think they have bigger fish to fry in the University of North Carolina and Harvard uh, affirmative action cases, which are going to come out any day now. That would be really cool if I could say something like, well, we're going to take a brief pause and talk about yeah. uh, fish. But <laughs> I don't have a clue. So we're going to pause for just a minute and then we're going to come back and we'll talk about what's happening in the conservative house floor. And we'll talk about Mike Pence. The next big story that we want to tackle, Ken, is the conservative house floor vault. This week, the house has been at a complete standstill, so much so that Speaker McCarthy on Wednesday recessed the chamber until Monday. Now, recessing has allowed the Speaker and other top leaders to meet with each other and, importantly, conservatives who had orchestrated the blockade. Now, what happened? Tuesday, 11 Republicans voted down a rule on, a, on the House floor in frustration over the debt limit deal McCarthy had negotiated with Biden uh, last week. Now, other Republicans were then upset with just those few uh, holding up bills. As Representative uh, Womack told reporters, quote, you've got the tail wagging the dog. You've got a small group of people who are peed off that, keep, uh, that are keeping the House of Representatives from functioning today. And I think the American people are not going to take too kindly to that, end quote. Now, right now, there are no specific asks, although there have been lots of questions to those conservative groups about what those asks would be. Andy Biggs, one of the individuals blocking the vote, said, quote, the Speaker formed a coalition with Democrats to get us a $4 trillion national debt, and I continue to be concerned because he hasn't repudiated that coalition. And my guess is he's prepared to do it again on the next three must-pass bills, the Farm Bill, NDAA, and the Budget, end quote. Right now, it seems that those uh, who voted against the deal, 71 House members, some of them are accusing McCarthy of basically going back on his deal to be speaker. And so there has been also some swirling about what does this mean for McCarthy's speakership? 
There was an agreement in January, Ken Buck, a Republican representative from Colorado, said uh, on Wednesday, quote, and it was violated in the debt ceiling bill, end quote. So he's arguing that there is a problem. uh, uh, McCarthy has responded to this effectively. It's just a misunderstanding. And that by the time we get to Monday, that the House will continue forward. I guess my question to start with here, Ken, is what do you think McCarthy's future is when we get down to Monday? Well, I, I think he will remain the speaker because he I don't know who the alternative would be. I mean, they the the the, the same uh, right wing faction that is is trying to give him so much trouble. They basically got nowhere, you know, even when they forced 18 or 20 or however many votes it was at the beginning of the session um, to, to, to get any other any any other plausible contender to be speaker. So I, I think he will continue to be speaker. Um, I think his ability to get anything done you know, it was somewhat of a miracle that he got the the 217 or 218 votes that he needed to pass the Republican um, uh, version of the before they had the compromise version when they had that first version of the 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 um, the, the debt ceiling bill uh, and he did get all the Republicans to vote for it or substantially all the Republicans to vote for it. That might be the one and only time he manages that, um, and I think he otherwise is going to have to rely on Democratic votes to some extent. Um, as he did in the final version of the debt ceiling vote. Um, But I I do think he'll continue to be speaker. He'll just be the weakest speaker probably in the history of the House. Yeah, I mean, so what does this mean moving forward? There are additional bills coming up. Uh, I mean, are you you articulating? My guess is is that you can't get them done. And I I think the next big one's going to be the budget. Yeah, well, I think something like the budget that has to get done, just like the debt ceiling increase that has to get done, um, the the path to getting it done is finding something that a majority of Republicans will vote for. It could be a thin majority um, so that he can comply with the Haystert rule and only bring things to the floor that have a majority support among the Republicans, um, but that he can also get Democratic votes for to enough that it can pass. And, you know, that was the formula that got the, the final uh, debt deal through. And I think that's the that is the formula that, I you know, I think and hope will get a, a budget bill through. Um, but I, I don't the think Democrats he's got- are going to want to do, though. I mean, you kind of have the fiscal cliff when it comes to raising the debt ceiling. Uh, but historically speaking, when I go back and take a look at this, even when Republicans think they're going to get wins out of shutting down uh, government, that generally is not the case. Might it not be the case the Democrats say, like, you know, we, we crossed over for this, not this time? Yeah, I think that's a it's a big risk. I'm not, I'm not you know I'm not saying that there won't be a government shutdown, but but what I am saying is that um, you know if there's a government shutdown, you know eventually it'll end. And I think the the I don't think there'll be a government shutdown that where the government just stays shut down the whole time until while we're doing the 2024 elections, the the government is still shut down. And uh, and so if it's ever going to end, I think again the only path out is there there has to be a bill that passes the house and i think the only way that there's a bill that passes the house is um just like with the debt bill you've got to have the majority of republicans in the house uh supporting it but you're not going to get all the republicans in the house supporting it and that means a majority of the house can't support it unless the some democrats also support it and i think that does give the democrats a reasonable amount of leverage and the democrats did exert a lot of leverage in the debt deal which i think you know probably everybody from all sides thinks you know biden wound up with a much better deal than people were thinking he would get going in and i, I think that that is kind of the the result of of this kind of situation. If if the Republicans need to find a way out of, of a problem like a government shutdown, and if the only way out you know runs through the Democrats because they can't unify the Republicans, um, then they're going to have to make more concessions to the Democrats. And some Republicans will do it, and other Republicans will just get madder and madder about it. Now, th- this is something I'm I'm curious about. I, I thought about this carefully. You know, one of the concerns when it came time for this to be so close was, look, what's what's ever going to get done? Now, maybe my libertarian side is coming out in me, uh, but I said, look, you either get fewer things done, and or you get fewer things done, and, and you get more necessary bipartisan uh, support. Does having a close house, does having a close Senate? maybe actually benefit us in ways. I had been pondering this this week as we were getting ready for the show, and I kept thinking, maybe this is really what we need, is to have a close House, to have a close Senate, to force these kinds of conversations, to force votes across party lines a little bit, uh, to make these kinds of things happen. 
I know that there was a lot of hand-wringing early on, uh, first in the Senate from uh, Democrats and then in the House from Republicans about these kinds of close. Uh, but I, I see this as potentially being good all the way around. What do you take about the, on that view? Again, maybe I'm wrong, but that, that has been kind of what I've mulled the last few days as I've thought about this carefully. You know, I think when the American public uh, votes for divided government, um, they're hoping that something will happen along the lines of what you just described, right? So they're hoping that, yeah, we want divided government because we actually don't want the Congress to do too much. We don't want too many laws to, to pass. We don't want too many changes. We just want the status quo. Um, and, you know, I get that. I, I think the, the difficulty here is that um, the the because of the the, um, the 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 closeness of the House combined with the fact that the um, there, there's a certain uh, nihilistic faction within the House Republicans who you know really just want to see the the government destroyed. Um, the only way we get to that point where we have what you're sort of thinking as a kind of beneficial form of gridlock is through all this brinksmanship where we're potentially, you know, the markets got very shaken up. The interest rates that the government has to pay now to borrow money, you know, even though we didn't breach the, the, the debt, even though we didn't breach the debt ceiling, we didn't foreclose on any debts. I think that there's trillions of dollars of new expenses um, imposed on the Treasury just because they have to pay higher interest rates now because the credit markets have less faith. That they'll always pay, um, and uh, um, and and the, the, you know we may see government shutdowns again before we get um, to some kind of compromise deal. I think if there was a way that um, you could have a Congress that sort of bought into the idea, well, we've got a divided government, and that means we're basically just going to you know keep the lights on, keep the status quo, not do anything big. That that could benefit a lot of uh, that could match what a lot of the public wants, but I don't think that's what our divided government gives us. I think our divided government that we have now. Um, gives us a lot of drama and a lot of dysfunction um, that that um, because because the because the 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 House Republicans the majority a, a working majority of House Republicans isn't just going to agree to that they're still going to want to try to force these big changes that they're not going to get and that's going to force these um, the, the, these dramas that have a very negative impact. You know, I thought about that, and so I don't I don't totally disagree, but at the same time, I wonder if. And I'd look back a little bit. You know, we're talking about 11 Republicans right now, uh, primarily when it comes to, to uh, holding up the, uh, the, the rules votes in the House. And I'd say, you know, it, it's probably undoubtedly the case that both Democrats and Republicans have 11 or 12 members who have those kinds of uh, goals. I mean, anytime you're close, aren't you going to see those kinds of factions come to the fore. I mean, it, it's one of the potential complaints about proportional representation effectively is, is that, you know, in any particular country, you're going to find somewhere between one and 10% of what you might call the, uh, the terrible, uh, right. And, and you, and you don't want that. You want kind of these super majoritarian things to move forward, but maybe it's not a bad thing necessarily to have those 11, have those kinds of voices, because then it, the, even if it doesn't actually get anything done, kind of in more of that uh, proportional, that PR style, uh, you, you still kind of feel heard. Well, again, I, 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 we might be repeating what we both just said, but I, I think if it was just a question of these 11 can cause a lot of gridlock and the public wants a lot of gridlock anyhow, so what's the problem? Um, I don't. I wouldn't disagree with with that uh, that analysis, but but what I think is, you know, those eleven, their goal isn't just to cause gridlock. Their goal is to, you know, implement their agenda, and at, at, because of because they've got this, you know, unprecedentedly weak speaker who is actually, you know, operating under rules that, you know, let them take away his speakership at any moment. You know, they can't just be kind of ignored. We can't jump right to the step where um, McCarthy makes a deal um, with with Hakeem Jeffries and they each can deliver, you know, a certain number of votes from their constituencies. And it doesn't matter if the if the far right or the far left are, are going to vote because they can deliver enough centrists to get there. If that's the framework we were operating in, then I would agree with you that that's not a terrible framework. But I think the problem is um, that we're never it's never going to go that smoothly because, um, you know, because these these uh, these 11 Republicans, you know, at any at any moment, 
Um, they can say, well, we're demanding a reorganization. We think uh, McCarthy's working too closely with the Dems. Um, we're not going to give him our vote to stay speaker anymore. We have these rules now where we can take down his speakership at, at a whim. And uh, and so, th so that's going to mean that McCarthy always has to um, drag everything out you know, appear to be catering to them, um, not not let deals that are already, you know, where the numbers are there for deals to happen. Um, he can't just move towards making those deals happen. So I, I think we will continue to see um, the kind of drama that we just saw where, you know, you could look at it as though, well, we didn't default on the debt. We didn't breach the debt ceiling. You know, we got through it. Um, but the way that we got through it was, uh, I think, very harmful to the country. And and very harmful to the government, and uh, um, and I think that that's going to similarly be the case uh, for government shutdowns that I think likely will come. Um, even though I think then there likely will be deals to end those shutdowns that easily could have been made before the shutdowns ever came, um, uh, but it's just not going to happen that way. Okay. Well, let, let's move to, well, I mean, I guess the best way to put this is to say, even on the politics guys, Mike Pence is in last. Um, yep. <laughs> I want you to know I had not written that joke out in advance, people. That that was on the fly here as I was thinking about it. Uh, <laughs> Wednesday, Mike Pence made himself an official candidate for the Republican nomination for president in Iowa. He is running for president now formally against his former boss, Donald Trump, because he said, quote, different times call for different leadership. He would go on to say, we can defend our liberties and give America a new beginning for life, but it will require new leadership in the White House and in the Republican Party, end quote. That's a, uh, I, I see that, uh, that, that is a very, uh, uh, a unique phrase and an important phrase, in my opinion. I'm, I'm curious how that moves forward. We'll talk more about that. He capped off Wednesday by going on a CNN town hall. That should sound a little familiar, like me too. Uh, and, and he had some things to say <laughs> in that environment as well. Uh, he weighed in on the matter of what was then still the hypothetical of the Trump in, uh, uh, indictment, uh, saying, uh, quote, it would be terribly divisive to the country and that he would hope that the indictment would not go forward. Quote, it would also send a terrible message to the wider world, end quote. But he adds, look, look quote, nobody's above the law, end quote. Uh, he would then, when pressed about that, uh, specifically if he would uh, issue a uh, pardon for Trump, uh, kind of shifted and said, look, you know, I, who even knows I'm going to be the, the president of the United States or not? Uh, you know, we got to get there first. Uh, and he's going to take a, he's going to stake out some traditional Republican uh, spaces. Maybe the most different would be to try to highlight himself once again as the evangelical, as the Christian, uh, you know, kind of maybe the the Christian. Trump. I'm, you know, I'm going to fight as a gentleman, maybe. So really what I took away from it all, uh, uh, Mike, was, look, I'm like Donald Trump in a few important ways, but in some other key ways, my religiosity, uh, the way I handle the law, that's fundamentally different. And in my tone, I'm going to be fundamentally different. And, and that's what we need. And although he doesn't out outright say it, I can see him trying to differentiate himself as well uh, 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 from DeSantis, uh, you know, trying to say, look, that that's not the way we do it. We, we, we don't want Trump Jr. I mean, again, obviously there is a Trump Jr., but we, we, we don't want Trump light. We need something that, that's actually kind of qualitatively and quantitatively different, and that's me. Uh, so, and again, right now, he's not doing well, right? We take a look at the numbers. He's badly trailing uh, Donald Trump. He still finds himself behind Ron DeSantis, even after the slight bump of his announcement. Uh, he's still down by double digits. Uh, and he's got a big donor network, so it's not like he's hurting for money, which oftentimes is one of the things you look at, at least as a political scientist, to see why you might have a difference uh, in polling numbers. And of course, he has clear uh, uh, name ID. But one of the things I've noticed that does make him a little bit different is, is that when you take a look at him compared to his competitors, he has one of the highest negatives and that appears to be in part because there's still a large faction of the Republican uh, voting base uh, who sees him as you know, having caved in January 2021. And that's probably one of the things that push his negatives up. So what do you think about Pence's formal entrance into the race, his chances, et cetera, Ken? 
You know, this is a, a world that I think you understand much better than I do. So I think your perspectives will be worth more than mine. But I, he obviously has no chance, but I, I don't know why that is. You know, I guess that's the part I don't understand. Like, it seems to me that um, in 2016, um, when Trump brought Pence on the ticket, um, Pence added a lot of electoral value there because I think evangelicals were more likely to trust uh, Pence than, than Trump. Uh, in 2016 and and felt more comfortable with Trump because Pence was on the ticket. And the part that I can't understand is how did it happen that all these evangelicals who um, Pence maybe brought into the Trump movement just transferred their um, affection so completely to Trump and so uh, away from Pence, um, even though Pence is seemingly one of them and, and Trump isn't. And I, I don't I don't get it, um, but I observe it. Well, I'll tell you, I've, I've thought about that, and, I, and I've thought about why that's the case, and, I, and I've and i looked at the data on this, and I, I think one piece of the puzzle for understanding what's happening in the Republican Party right now, you actually have to get away from the specific political data, and you need to take a look at sociological and religious data. And one of the big changes in the United States, of course, is a, is a shift in religiosity. There's far less religiosity in the United States. And a lot of that is happening in evangelical areas, right? I mean, for a long time, mainline denominational structures have been hemorrhaging uh, uh, adherents, but they were made up with uh, for by uh, evangelical sources, what, you know, what is generally at least called evangelical. But if you look at the most recent state of the data on religiosity, it has decreased precipitously in the last 10 years, right? And specifically, although again, this isn't what you're, you know, there, I think these are two data sets that aren't coming up next to one another all the time. I think you're seeing that shift uh, bake out in the Republican Party. Uh, and so one of the things that I think would have held together, say, even individuals who were different like myself, ideologically speaking, from other conservatives, uh, was we were both broadly religious in similar uh, kind of uh, sister uh, uh, faiths. And that does not appear to be the case anymore. When you take a look at uh, you know, the percentage of evangelicals who are making up kind of those primary voters, it's, de- it's decreasing precipitously for Republicans. And I think what, what Pence is seeing, and I think why Pence is not where he is uh, anymore is is that when you take a look, I think some of the most kind of radical sources for Trumpian populism, for lack of a better phrase, I think a lot of it is actually among con- conservatives who no longer have that religious base, uh, who have kind of left behind conservatism, have become populists, who were popular with Trump. And as a result, I th- they don't have the traditional things that can link us together. And I think the reason Pence is not doing well is I don't think anyone has yet put together those two data sets really well. I don't think that the sociological changes in the United States, specifically as they relate to religiosity, it ha- has been lined up yet with especially primary voting outcomes uh, uh, in the Republican Party, and and I think is I think there's papers and uh, uh, analytic work to be done right there, and I and I think that's why P- Pence is suffering. Yeah, I mean, I, I I that sounds persuasive to me, and I I uh, it's interesting because if you think about the coalition that Reagan put together, which is sort of you know I think the origins of the modern Republican Party, you know, religious I would conservatives. Say the last, were, I, 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 I yeah. don't even know if I'd say. I mean, again, I'm not trying to like completely disagree, yeah. but. I think anymore the current. I mean, if you say the current, I think we have we have a that the Trump is the current. I, I think the yeah, last right, right. current was yeah, probably Trump. Yeah, the pre-Trump Republican yes, Party. Yeah, I I, I, yeah. So 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 you know Reagan. I, I I think it was like he he got the evangelicals and religious conservatives, particularly ones who were motivated by the abortion issue. Uh, he got people who were interested in um, uh, you know shrinking the size of government a little bit. Um, and he got uh, Cold War. People are interested in fighting the Cold War. And uh, and it seems like in the post-Trump Republican Party, none of those issues are at all important, right? So you were just sort of describing that, um, 
you know, that the, the 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 percentage of of the Republican Party that's um, you know consists of genuine um, religious conservatives may be uh, eroding away. Um, you know, I think the 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 recent um, you know resolution of the of the debt deal. You know, one aspect of that we didn't talk about a minute ago is. You know, most of the Republican voters, um, you know, unlike the the eleven um, who felt, uh, you know, very much like they'd rather have taken down the government, uh, most of the Republican voters, I think, didn't squawk too much about the deal that um, McCarthy made, um, and that's because they didn't care that much about these deficit issues anymore. And then, you know, you have also, you know, the the the, the Trump Republican Party is sort of the opposite of a cold warrior type party. They're they're um, very isolationist and. Uh, what so you I think I about see it, almost, the end of the Cold yeah. War uh, rhetoric, I think, in, in large part, goes it, it dies during the Romney versus Obama era. Yeah. So there's almost nothing left of of the issues that um, that Reagan kind of built built the Republican, the the semi modern or the the most recent iteration <laughs> before Trump of the uh, Republican Party around. It's it's like and and it, it just and so I guess there's really nothing there. I mean, maybe that's the explanation for why. Uh, Pence isn't getting any 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 uh, traction. Is like he's he's really trying to appeal to yesterday's Republican Party, and yesterday's Republican Party is gone. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you. I, I think what you're saying fits with that analysis, and and I think you know, in the as I just said a second ago, I, I think that idea of the Cold War Republican that died with the Romney loss, I think, in real ways. I, I, I think that was already the death knell for it before we even got to Trump. Either Trump recognized it or, you know, Trump just happened to be the right thing at the right moment. And, and that can be difficult sometimes to, to ascertain, you know, how much of that is perspective, somebody's success, and how much of that is just the chance of, you know, we'd run 100 different people in 100 different scenarios, and, and this is the one that wins. But yeah, no, you don't have that. In the limited government guys, there's not, there really aren't a lot of them left. Uh, and I think in part because kind of the underlying philosophical assumptions of that are not the underlying philosophical assumptions. You know, it, one of the things that I had a really uh, a good student who came to OC, very dedicated. He, he uh, this individual is a Trump, complete Trump supporter from the very beginning and, and uh, took a modern uh, ideologies and a philosophy class with me. And when we got done, you know, early on was very uh, derisive of you know, what we were doing, but at the end was very thankful and I, I was happy about it. And he said, you know, it's, it's become apparent to me. I'm not really a conservative, am I? And I'm like, no, you're not. I'm not telling you what you have to be, right? I, I don't, I'm not, you know, this, that's not my goal here. Um, you know, on our own time, we can have a conversation about that. In this class, I'm just trying to help you. No, you're not. You're not at all a conservative. You, you hate Burke and, and, and you hate the, the individuals like Kirk who, who come from Burke. And again, you don't want to take too much from an anecdotal story. But I will say that I saw in that individual, I think a lot of what we see happening now, which is a lot of individuals going, I'm not really, a, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Trumpian. I'm not really a conservative. Uh, and again, in this case, I think some of those sociological differences are part of the reason. But the language shifts second, <laughs> right? You know, right, we, right. we label things after they occur. We're not really good at labeling them as they occur. Uh, <laughs> and, and I think that's what's happening. We're in the midst of a change and we're trying to figure out that label. And, and people like us and, and scholars, we're, we're trying to label it accurately. And, and that's why, again, I, I don't disagree. I think your analysis fits mine spot on. Pence is yeah. a man speaking to a dwindling number of individuals who, who in no way control the majority or the, the the young individuals of the party. Yeah, I mean, you know, it almost makes me wonder why he's running now because he he's got to understand that. I mean, if we figure that out in a few minutes just now, you know, he's got he's got to understand. Well, see, I, that, see, I think I know why. Um, okay, he, I, I honestly think he recognizes this, and I don't know if you've read stories about him, um, uh, but you know, very religious man, and his wife actually has made him a little uh, uh, a bit of scripture. Christian scripture, let me be clear, uh, about, you know, you, you don't know the ways of the Lord before you. And, and, I, and I think in all honesty, if I, I think if, I, if we could get Pence on the show and he'd be willing to be, you know, honest with us, maybe after he loses or something, uh, I, I think the honest answer is, is that Pence sees this as the right thing to do 
whether he can win or not, and he is trusting and praying uh, 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 to God that that's that's what he's going to do, and he's going to go down that way. And I think sometimes it's hard for those outside of the faith tradition to realize that there is uh, kind of a long Christian tradition of the idea of, well, you know, as for me and my house, I'm still going to do it this way, even if I know I can't win, (laughs) right? Right, right. And I honestly think given his, I mean, everything about what he says indicates to me somebody who comes from a similar background as me in those ways. I can understand, I could hear him saying that in a church room to somebody going, look, I'm doing this because it's the right thing to do. I get it, right? <laughs> now, that's not the way you're going <laughs> to campaign, and I get that too, right? You can't come up on TV and be like, look, <laughs> but that's what I think. That's my honest opinion. He just feels sort of like it's his calling, like he it's, has to do this because of his calling. Yeah, this is, this is what God has tasked him with, uh, and, uh, and he has to do that. It's almost like it's it's an opportunity that when he by campaigning he can evangelize a little bit for his ideas and so some people hear what he has to say and that's basically what he's hoping to get out of it. That would be my guess. Yes, if again if I could get him alone in a room, if he said anything other than that, I'd be shocked. Maybe I'm wrong, but that I mm, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Ken, I mean, we we we've had we had a full show. I love it. Um, thanks yeah. for the show. Yeah, it was. Uh, I didn't know if I'd be able to pull it off. Like I've, I've I've been away for from the country for a month. I haven't been reading the news, but I, I think we got through it. So I, I'll promise to be better prepared uh, next time. Well, we're, we've got a, we got a bunch coming uh, forward. So if you like me and Ken, keep in mind we've got a we got a bunch where you're going to be hearing from me a lot uh, as we take some things over this summer. But. For at least for this week, thanks for joining. That's this week's show. If you're not already a supporter of the Politics Guys, I really hope you'll be considered becoming one. It is because of supporters that this podcast continues to move forward. And it's not because you're not just doing this like Pence. You're not just doing this out of the goodness of your heart. You get things, too. (laughs) You get things when you become a supporter of the show, like, for example, ad-free versions of everything we put out, as well as our supporter-exclusive midweek show where we break away from the constraints. And in the case of uh, Ken and myself, uh, we have been going through the Constitution. As a matter of fact, I, I, I didn't let anybody else take up the Constitution with me while you were gone, Ken, because I was like, no, that's our thing. So <laughs> we're going to start right where we left off. We're going to be taking up Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution, uh, talking about the presidency. And I'd love for you to join me and Ken on that as we kind of break away from the news cycle and get into the Constitution. We'll, and we're going to be doing that every week, a bunch of weeks here in the summer. And if you're a supporter, you're going to get access to that. So not only the ad free, but things like the Constitution shows. So it, what do you do? You're thinking, I, I want to be a part of this. I want to be a part of the Discord group. I want to be a part of uh, 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 Trey and Ken's uh, Constitution. I want to get those ad free shows. What do you do? Well, here's the way you do it. You can head to patreon.com slash politics, guys, and check out all the different levels of support. Now, here's the other really cool new thing that you get by heading to patreon.com slash politics, guys. We, we were test piling this last week, kind of live episodes. And here's the cool thing. We're doing another one. As a matter of fact, uh, this uh, 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 next week, we're going to be doing another live show with Mike and Jay. And guess what? If you are a $10 per month or higher Patreon supporter, you get the Zoom link to be able to listen to that and participate live. So that next one like, is going to be on the 17th and it's going to be at 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, just like the last one. Uh, so that's going to be, again, the 17th at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time for everybody who's at the $10 per month or higher on the Patreon support level is going to get that Zoom link. So maybe all those other things weren't enough. Well, if you head to patreon.com slash politics, guys, and you set that level to support to at least $10, you'll have access to that 17th live show with Mike and Jay. Now, if you'd like to support us in other ways, you can do that as well. You can support the show on Venmo, where we're at politics, guys. You can also support the show through PayPal. If you want to take a look at all of that, you can see it in the show notes at the bottom of whatever the podcast app you're using, or you can always head to our uh, website, politicsguys.com slash support to get us. But again, if you want to be part of that live show on the 17th at 9 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time, head to patreon.com slash politics guys and make sure that your level of support is $10 or higher per month. 
Now, if you'd like to get the midweek show specifically, but you're just not in a position to financially support it, again, I get that. I've got three kids. I've got a house. Uh, I haven't gotten a raise in heavens knows how long. So guess what? You can do it too. Please just shoot an email to Mike at politicsguys.com and we'll get you set up. Now, whether you're a supporter or not, we really would appreciate you if you would subscribe, rate, or review us on the podcast app of your choice. People only scroll so far the way down on those. And so being on the top of those lists is hugely important. So it's an easy, easy, free way to support the show. Just keep on rating us and rating those episodes, including this one, and shoot it out on social media. If you've got a question, comment, correction, gripe, manifesto, or anything else you'd like to share with us, you can always reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. You'll find the links in the show notes. Don't forget, if you want to be a part of the Discord group, that's a supporting. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Morano, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, Don Oglesby, and Ivan English. We're going to be back with a new episode here in just a few days. I hope you'll join us then.